0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get
1: started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels – With dinner, bed, and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb, and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.
2: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
4: Very strange idea, really, to think that you're going to change the mentality of a nation through culture. And it's rather wonderful if you're a writer to think that literature ever had this kind of power.
5: That was Laura Feigl on the efforts to rebuild and reshape Germany's culture in the years after the Second World War.
6: These are objects which are owned and used by people who, in the general run of things, would be considered not literate, and yet they could literally stamp their name on a document.
5: And that was Elizabeth New, talking about a project that is using forensic techniques to explore medieval seals. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com Forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo, and Zinio. Look out for us in your App Store or Newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Our first interview this week is with Lara Feigel, a senior lecturer at King's College London. Lara is the author of The Bitter Taste of Victory, which explores allied attempts to rebuild German culture in the aftermath of the Second World War, and focuses on the roles of individuals such as the writer Klaus Mann, the filmmaker Billy Wilder, the novelist Stephen Spender, and the journalist Martha Gellhorn. Lara spoke to our books editor, Matt Elton, who began by asking her why she embarked on this project in the first place.
4: Yeah, so it came out, I edited Stephen Spender's journals and saw that he had gone to Germany after the war Hmm. um, and was quite surprised to find out that the British were sending all these British British intellectuals um, over to Germany to attempt to transform the mentality of the Germans. And then at the same time uh, was writing The Love Charm of Bombs, my last book, One of the characters there being Hilda Spiel, the Austrian writer, and she and her husband, Peter de Mendelssohn, went over uh, as exiles, but now in British Army uniform. Peter de Mendelssohn was in charge in his 30s of reconstructing the press in the whole British zone. And so gradually these pieces were coming together, Mm. and I wanted to find out about the wider story.
3: Mm. Um, What, I mean... How 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 did you decide, because you follow 20 mm. specific individuals, how did you decide which 20 to, to choose? Was that hard, choosing just 20?
4: It was, and of course every reader is going to... Well, readers who know about the period will often have their person I left out, and there are quite interesting people left out, but I tried to choose the most prominent because they were the people, particularly if they were reporting, who were going to have much more impact at home. And then the people... Who it affected most. So, Evelyn Waugh popped into Nuremberg for two days, and whilst he's Evelyn Waugh, and I, I did have a sort of cameo appearance. It's not going to have changed him as much as Rebecca West, who was there for several weeks, and who even fell in love with the uh, American, uh, uh, the American judge, mm. while she was there. Um, so I've I've tried to choose the people who had most effect and who were most affected.
3: Because part of the book is the way in which Germany actually affected these people rather than more than they ended up changing Germany, which we'll touch on some more in a minute, I guess. Um, How, how, I mean, to what extent uh, is the period that you cover kind of like a bridge between two different periods, do you think?
4: Very much so. And it's also a bridge that's often, I think, now forgotten, that we think of Germany... In the 1950s, as, as miraculously, and we we'll use the phrase economic miracle, as miraculously turning into uh, this very prosperous, uh, reconstructed nation, we think of Germany in the 70s as really facing its past um, and being a kind of tolerant centre in Europe. But immediately after the war, Germany was devastated in a way that I think it's hard for anyone who hasn't been in that kind of war zone to even conceive of visually. And also, the Germans had been too brainwashed by 12 years of national socialism to begin to really move towards tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yes, it's a bridge between two worlds that we know a lot more about. It's also a moment of potential that's subsequently been lost um, because it was a moment when a lot of the people went, who were going in were unusually idealistic and really wanted to forge a world that wasn't dominated by national identity and was much more about a kind of new, peaceful pan-Europe, and was going to be a world in which culture played an unusually large part. And that, I think, was, was really lost by the Cold War, and the, the world that kind of moves into the 50s is one whose divisions are very clearly um, demarcated on Cold War lines.
3: Mm. I mean, how much debate was there about the way in which the German psyche could be transformed during this period?
4: Lots of debates, and generally the people I'm interested in were the the more hopeful ones in that respect. Stephen Spender, Klaus Mann, Thomas Mann's son, um, really hoped that by going in and trying to find the Germans who'd who'd resisted Hitler in whatever way and and sort of revive culture through them, they could create a whole new Germany. At the same time, uh, a lot of the military who'd sort of been fighting the Germans uh for the last five years didn't really believe that there was any such thing as a good German you get to take, there was sort of various booklets published uh and given to the personnel who were going over saying there's no such thing as a good German um there are only uh good elements and bad elements in the German character and the bad usually predominate mm. um,
3: was there much conflict between the military and these cultural figures that you follow
4: uh Conflict in the sense that they often were very frustrated by not being able to get anything done. So Billy Wilder in Germany... In fact, he's he's one of the more anti-Germans of of the people I look at, largely because he himself had had spent time in Berlin and had had felt the anti-Semitism even before uh, Hitler came to power. Um, He found that his attempts to get a a documentary about the concentration camps off the ground were thwarted by red tape. And it's not even... Necessarily by matters of principle. It just feels like the military is is too large and too cumbersome and too confused by what its role is, having just been fighting this country and suddenly finding itself reconstructing it to know how to organise uh, a cultural programme of reconstruction. Mm.
3: Was it hard shifting from seeing the Germans as targets to seeing them as people that needed to be cared for?
4: Yes, it was. And, in, and also for for quite a lot of the people I'm interested in, certainly Martha Gellhorn... Uh, going into Germany and reporting immediately after the war, finds herself hating the Germans, partly because of their sycopancy. Um, and I think often the Germans didn't make it easy to, to, for these people to want to care for them because they seemed more anxious to convince the Allies that in fact none of them had been Nazis uh, at all than to uh, express sorrow or acknowledgement of what had happened in Germany.
3: I was surprised by how much anti-German feeling there was among these people that you follow. Why do you think that, that was? you kind of touched on that a bit there. but
4: Yeah, I mean, I think a mixed, I think for some of them, for, for the Germans returning, they really felt like if they'd managed to make a stand against Hitler, then their countrymen should have as well. I mean, there's the kind of argument that actually not every German could emigrate, yeah. but I think lots of these people really felt that all oh, the intelligent ones should have done. Um, and then I think uh, others go in more open-minded, but are too off-put by the fancy. Um, and lots of people who are, who are prepared to sympathise for sort of handfuls of Germans they meet then see the concentration camps and see quite how this has been orchestrated and quite how many people were involved in, in the sort of immense bureaucracy uh, governing the camps and start to feel that actually it's not enough for, for people to look the other way. Mm.
3: How did some of these people get involved in this cultural effort?
4: So Steven Spender had been in Germany before the war and had had been very shaped by his encounters with the German critic E. R. Kurtzietz um, and wanted to go back to find out what had happened to him and to make contacts with the other Germans he'd known. And the same was really true for Auden, uh, who came from America, uh, where he was then living. And both of them applied to the authorities, asking if there was a role for them to be sent in. Others, the the... Allied authorities were looking for people who could speak German to do things like set up the press. Although there was officially a non fraternization rule uh, preventing the occupiers from speaking to the occupied, um, some people had to do it because otherwise nothing would have have got done. So they were also looking uh, for German speakers and quite often the British people or Americans who spoke German uh, were cultural figures. So sometimes it was just a coincidence that, that they were cultural figures who happened to go in as part of larger programmes. Okay. Um, like Auden was, was part of the so-called Us Busters who were looking for the um, effects of bomb damage on morale. Um, but in addition, they did have a distinct cultural programme and so Billy Wilder was really... They looked around America to think of a filmmaker who would uh, be most... Relevant, I suppose, to be sent into Germany, and chose him as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and that was particularly the case mm-hmm. after forty-seven, when, in the light of the Cold War and in the light of the efforts that the Russians had already made in Germany in uh, reconstructing culture in their zones, the Americans, in particular, wanted to send in cultural figures to show off to the Germans and convince them uh, that they'd rather be governed by by the Americans than the Russians.
3: We should talk about responsibility and how these figures saw the notion of German guilt. How did they deal with that in their interactions with the German people?
4: I think a lot of them came in with a strong sense of responsibility, which was increased by seeing the ruins of the concentration camps. But at the same time, people looking at the Belmont cities couldn't really begin to think how you might hold these people for account when they were barely able to survive. Um, And there is a significant amount of pity expressed uh, for the Germans living in the ruins. Almost no-one had functioning electricity, water, there was no cutlery. Um, people's houses had been reduced to rubble, there were sort of several families living in any surviving cellar. But a year later, in, in, in the sort of freezing winter that followed, people were often freezing in, in flats filled with water that sort of froze up at night. Um, so there is pity for the Germans, and which doesn't always bring a sense of, of the need for every German to acknowledge responsibility. And particularly in the late 40s, you get Victor Gollancz going into Germany in 47, determined that as a Jew, he in particular should, should say that um, however awful what has happened is, it doesn't make every German responsible Um, and that the British should certainly avoid treating them in any way comparable to how the Germans have been treating their victims.
3: There's people who go back three or four years after the war ends and are shocked by the fact there's still rubble everywhere. Mm. It's still a mess, you know?
4: Yeah, by 1949 it still looks... Mm. There there are still cities with mile after mile of completely uninhabitable houses. The rubble has been piled up, but it's very much not gone. That surprised me how how long it took for that to change. Yeah, but then when you think... I think it's just hard to grasp the scale of destruction that really in most German cities there will be sort of three mile stretches with not a single house surviving where houses are just flattened into piles of rubble. And it's very hard to get rid of it and very hard to begin to rebuild, particularly in a country where resources are so scarce and where the occupiers are unable to plunge in vast amounts of money because they themselves are suffering war damage at home.
3: There's that city where all the fronts of the houses are intact but nothing
4: behind them. Yeah, quite either. often that's the case. In Berlin, in fact, because the architecture of Berlin somehow uh, was more conducive to that, you quite often get r- rows of facades uh, where you think there might be houses but then you peer in the windows and find that it's just so the front weird. of the building. Yeah, yeah. Billy Wilder's film, the Foreign Affair, has some particularly amazing footage of Berlin at that time where he, he does aerial uh, f- uh, films of the
3: city from above. Talking about his film, actually, there's that story about how they show the film in the concentration camps and then people stay in the audience waiting for the cowboy film they thought they were going to see,
4: which yes. is incredible. So that's, that's not a foreign affair. That's when Billy Wilder was involved in making a concentration camp documentary. Um, and it's a sort of 20 minute film, which is shown when the cinemas reopen in the spring of 1945. And a programme is advertised because the, the Allies rightly think that the Germans won't go if it's only going to be teaching them a lesson. There's a programme advertised that includes, I think, Duke Ellington's orchestra and a cowboy film. Um, and they watch the concentration camp documentary. And then some Germans, most, I mean, there is, I think, a, a collective sense of horror at it's, it's, it's seeing all this evidence uh, But then a few Germans stay behind, waiting for the Cowboy film, and Wilder is really horrified. But I think at the same time, you just have to think that these people haven't had a pleasant moment for the last five years um, and have heard so much about the concentration camps by that time, not in film footage, but in pictures that are posted over their cities, um, that they've become quite numb to uh, these narratives.
3: What sense can we get from this of how German people saw the concentration camps both during and after the war?
4: I think there's a significant number of Germans who, in the immediate post-war years, don't quite believe the footage they see of it. Um, Who, um, by 1949, are still saying that Nazism was a good idea, badly carried out. There are surveys at that time that show, I think half the people um, in Germany saying that. But at the same time, uh, the, you know, the Allies were bringing in hundreds of people, hundreds of Germans were forced to, to sort of file past the camps and go inside them. And I'm sure there was a, a sort of larger sense of horror.
3: What were the other major efforts to reshape German culture by the Allies after the war? So were there any, like the showing of films mm-hmm. in cinemas, were there any other programmes like that that were used to, to help to change? Um...
4: So it was really films and books. They were sending in Western literature. Um, slightly randomly, they had a sort of books committee which selected stories for their edification and it included sort of just good novels from the 30s. I think there was even some Agatha Christie mm. thrown in alongside Virginia Woolf, Elizabeth Byrne. Um, and the hope was that, that this sort of inherently democratic literature, because it had been produced in a democracy, was somehow going to uh, make the Germans more democratic. Uh, the hope was also that great culture was going to make them uh, somehow more tolerant, which I think was always going to be rather dubious because they'd had great culture of their own um, for the last 12 years.
3: Do we get a sense of how people responded to this, this effort to re-culture them, I guess?
4: I think they didn't take it terribly seriously. I think um, most German writers were really delighted by the Allies coming in, and I think a lot hoped that they could collaborate with them. They, they really felt that Germany had been problematically cut off for these years and wanted contact with foreign writers, but I think the Allies went about it in too patronising and perhaps too piecemeal a way. Uh, to really gain the attention of of the German writers, who I think ended up waiting for for them to go to really to to begin to revive culture in in the fifties. Mm-hmm.
3: And there's a sense by the time you get to that winter of 1946 that you're trying to bring democracy to a starving people using using culture. How how was that seen? Was that seen as being in any way unlikely? I suppose
4: it was. But then, having said that. Um, it was extraordinary quite how many people went to the theatre and it was partly that the theatres were warm and the tickets were relatively cheap but even when they were expensive and, uh, Sartre's play The Flies was a massive sensation in 1949 in Berlin Sartre came to see it with Simone de Beauvoir um, and people were paying the equivalent of sort of a goose on the black market which when you think how hungry they were um, so there was a real appetite for culture and for foreign culture, and they were very prepared to to participate in the cultural offerings of the Allies when they weren't seen to be too patronising.
3: So it's too simplistic to say they were starving, they were not engaged with culture in any way because the two things were true at the same time, right? They were,
4: yes, and also endless magazines were starting. Um, so there was a real sense of wanting to revive culture, perhaps more than there might have been here in similar circumstances.
3: How, how difficult was it to uh, maintain cooperation in Berlin as the city became increasingly divided? Um, how, how did that shape how cultural programmes were, were established?
4: Very difficult. Initially, there, in Berlin in particular, there was a kind of great idealism about the sense that the occupiers could work together and that the divide traditionally, uh, sort of separating Soviet culture from Western culture, wouldn't apply here. Um, the Kulturbund, which was a kind of cultural organisation, Set up in the Eastern Zone, uh, led by Johann Becher, was really originally a cross-zone uh, organisation. But by forty-seven, as relationships between the senior occupiers broke down, culture had to follow suit, and it became harder and harder uh, to collaborate. And the Western Allies had to start boycotting. Soviet productions and, and likewise the other way around.
3: How did these experiences shape these people and how did that get felt throughout the rest of their career I guess?
4: I think the experience of seeing the concentration camps in the days immediately after they were liberated, before the stories had become legend I suppose uh, shaped several of these people for the rest of their lives. Martha Galhorn, in particular but also Lee Miller who could never again mention the fact that she'd been there lots of People she knew in subsequent years didn't know that she'd been in, in Germany after the war. Um, Martha Galhorn talked about losing her idealism. She, at this point, was in love, and I have a, a sort of quite lengthy section at the beginning of it about the rather extraordinary love triangle that developed between Martha Galhorn Marlena Dietrich and General James Gavin, who must be the most handsome general in the American army and certainly the youngest at this time. Um, and... Uh, Gavin is put in charge of of the American zone in Berlin and the two women compete rather wonderfully for him at one point flying in on the same aeroplane, at which point he has to admit defeat. Um, But so that's happening in the midst of this disillusionment and I think it's interesting because it begins as the kind of love story that had flourished uh, during the war where people find themselves in moments of suspended present, they can forget about the future and and kind of live more intensely than at any other point. But that coming in the midst of the concentration camps, I think, really changed it and meant that they couldn't believe in the possibility of happiness. And even before sort of Gavin's uh, caddishness made it fall apart, I think had had lost any sense that she could have a love affair with the future because having seen what people were capable of, she couldn't really believe in humanity.
3: Mm. Looking ahead, I guess, to the 60s or even later, um, in which period do we see the mainstream acceptance of some of the ideas these people were doing? I think
4: 40s? it's absolutely post-68. Post it's, it's both through the Baden-Meinhof terrorism and through a kind of quieter cultural moment. We could think of Anselm Kiefer's uh, pictures, which you have recently seen in London, entitled Occupation, where he sort of wears his father's military uniform and performs the Nazi salute in various places as a kind of acknowledgement to the unspoken Nazi past. This is something that by the 70s has become mainstream in Germany, but really until then hasn't been a topic of conversation.
3: How can we explain that, that lag? Do you
4: think? I think it's just a generational thing. I think it, you can't really expect people who have, have lived in a regime in which nothing other than the official line can be publicly said to suddenly uh, change their minds and rethink. Uh, um, and it's probably easy for us to forget now how much we are shaped by the prevailing attitudes of our time and and how much actually we rarely think outside those and how hard it would be to suddenly shift um and it took in Germany a new generation to do that
3: are there any images or themes that you think are spread across all the works these people produced the idea of rubble for instance I was interested Mm. in do you think that's a
4: Absolutely, yes, there's a, there's a genre that emerges in Germany after the walk of Truman literature, rebel literature and, and rubble film. And I think that imagery of rebel is very much one that, that pervades the works I've looked at and I talk about uh, I, I suggest that we might want to think in terms of something called outsider rebel literature where we, we think of all these quite different works, like Spender's Documentary Account, European Witness. Billy Wilder's film The Foreign Affair as forming a kind of genre linked by its imagery and by the way that that imagery of the rubble is used to question the notions of guilt and responsibility um, and the relationship I suppose between the ruins of the bomb cities and the ruins of the concentration camps mm-hmm.
3: What was the thing that surprised you most in the course of writing this, researching this book?
4: I suppose... Um, And being familiar with Berlin today and its tolerance, I was surprised how long it took for for the modern Germany uh, to be constructed. Um, I was surprised both that a cultural programme of this kind was thought of. It's a very strange idea, really, to think that you're going to change the mentality of a nation through culture. And it's rather wonderful if you're a writer to think that literature ever had this kind of power. Um, But then having seen it happen, I was surprised how quickly it was abandoned or, or failed, or how quickly the, the kind of inner in tensions took over and, and, and meant it couldn't uh, prevail.
3: I think it's nice, because we think about the war so often in terms of military uh, aspects, it's nice to think of it in terms of the cultural effects of the period afterwards. Are there any, any particular works that you think readers should turn to if they want to get an understanding of, of this period's first? Where would you like, say they start?
4: I think Stephen Spender's European Witness is a great book about um, Germany in the immediate post-war period. Billy Wilder's film, The Foreign Affair, is really, I think, one of his two or three best films and and oddly is not as popular as something like Some Like It Hot. It has Marlena Dietrich playing this extraordinary Nazi singer.
3: Are there any lessons in this story, do you think, for us in the 21st century? Is there anything we can take away from it?
4: I know that quite a lot of American colleagues who were working on this period were phoned up um, in the aftermath of the Iraq war by people saying we want, Germany was a kind of great moment of occupation can you suggest how we might make this one too I think the lesson is probably that it wasn't in fact a great moment of occupation and that it was simply the particular circumstances of the Cold War that meant it was in the end a success um, I'm not sure there are particularly useful lessons to take away except perhaps a, a, a sort of general disillusionment which isn't very helpful with, with what power culture can have when it comes to politics um, I think perhaps the, the, the missed opportunity if anything is one that we should, should return to in that sense that, that there was a moment at which people really thought that they could uh, forge peace through coming together in, a, in an international way um, and that was going to be partly through the shared values uh, that they thought they could explore through culture, and that's perhaps a moment of hope that we might want to return to.
5: That was Lara Feigel. The Bitter Taste of Victory in the Ruins of the Reich is due to be published in the UK later this month by Bloomsbury, and in the US it will be published in May, also by Bloomsbury. You can read more from Matt and Lara in the January edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's issue, we have articles on medieval violence, Wallace Simpson, war and peace and the murder of Edward II, among other things. You can get hold of our January edition in all good news agents and our many digital formats.
1: Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor Manor in Hungerford. Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire. Or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra.
5: Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason.
0: France's last queen, Marie Antoinette, may have had a torrid affair with a Swedish count who could have fathered two of her children, newly decoded letters suggest. Using cutting-edge X-ray and different infrared scanners, researchers in France have exposed blacked-out secret passages from Marie Antoinette's letters to Axel de Fersen, a friend of France's royal family. Sections of the letter had been redacted by an unknown censor, possibly the Swedish count himself or his descendants, in a bid to preserve Marie Antoinette's honour, the Telegraph reports. Historians have long debated the nature of Marie Antoinette and Fersen's relationship, whether it was romantic, sexual or merely platonic. This question was important during the French Revolution, as revolutionaries depicted the Queen as a traitor to husband and country, while royalists insisted she was loyal to Louis XVI. Marie Antoinette was sent to the guillotine on the 16th of October 1793. In other news, a new annotated German edition of Hitler's political manifesto, Mein Kampf, has sold out in less than a week. The 1,948-page version of the manifesto was published in Germany on the 1st of January after the book's copyright expired. The book includes thousands of notes by academics exploring the Nazi leaders' anti-Semitic tirades. Despite costing €59, the equivalent of £44, more than 15,000 advance orders were made, nearly four times the initial print run of 4,000 copies, the Times reports. Hitler wrote Mein Kampf in 1924 while he was in prison for his role in the Munich Beer Hall revolt of 1923. Meanwhile, new research suggests that popular history writing is a, quote, male preserve. According to a study by the US online journal Slate, three quarters of works published last year were written by men. The journal looked at 614 popular history titles published in the US last year by 80 different presses, finding that 75.8% were written by men. Reports in the Guardian newspaper suggest the playing field is just as, quote, heavily gendered in the UK. UK figures from Nielsen Bookscan show that last year there were just four solo female authors appearing in the top 50 best-selling history titles. Mary Beard, Caroline Moorhead, Julie Summers and Selina Todd. What's your reaction to this news? Share your views by tweeting us at History Extra or by posting on our Facebook page.
5: Before our next interview, here's a reminder about our upcoming events. Next month, on the 27th and 28th of February, we're holding two-day events on the First World War and Roman Britain, respectively. Each day you'll get the chance to hear talks from five expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for more details on those and to book tickets. Our next interview is with Elizabeth New, a lecturer in medieval history at Aberystwyth University. Elizabeth is one of the leaders of a fascinating research project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which is using modern forensic techniques to find out what medieval seals can tell us about the people who created them several hundred years ago. Elizabeth spoke
3: to Matt Elton. So first question, really, for people who might not have heard of the project, what is it that you're researching and what do you hope to find out?
6: The new project is called Imprint. It's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, and it's a collaborative project between Aberystwyth University and the University of Lincoln. Uh, My colleague, Professor Philippa Hoskin, is the principal investigator, and I'm the co-investigator. And we have two postdoctoral researchers. What we're looking at are seals. These are the lumps of wax attached to medieval documents in which a stamp uh, has been pressed as a means of authentication. And on the back of that lump of wax, you often find finger and palm prints. And we're looking at the combination of the, the, the whole thing. We're looking at the documents and the, the seal stamp and what that tells us about the person who's or the institution that's using it. But then we're also using cutting-edge forensic imaging techniques to analyse the palm and fingerprints. We're working with colleagues at Forensic Focus um, and Sheffield Digital Humanities Research Institute to um, think about who is actually involved in this crucial process of exchange, communication and authentication.
3: I mean, that sounds fascinating. I mean, what sort of things can we tell about these people from the prints they left on these seals then?
6: Well, there's a lot of interest in who was actually allowed to be involved in exchange. Uh, For example, we know that women owned seals and could be involved in exchange at certain points. But we did a pilot project a couple of years ago and got some very interesting results. Um, it's not 100% certain, but apparently you can usually tell whether the print is from a man or a woman. And none of the documents that where it should have been a woman using the seal because she was the seal owner, they, they didn't seem to be prints from women. So one of the questions we're asking is, although women were officially involved, were they actually allowed to access this formal process of authentication? Uh, Following on from that, did Lords... Take possession of the seal and you it actually imprint it in the wax on behalf of their tenants did the head of a monastery do that on behalf of the the monks or the nuns so it's it's access to this very important legal administrative process but also it's to do with power and authority and the authentication of documents was always done in front of witnesses and so it's demonstrating who actually takes control. And this is one of the questions that we'd like to ask.
3: It is interesting because we often think of these seals as being quite grand or only appearing on very important documents. But it sounds like they were much more common than that.
6: Yes, they were. This is one of the absolutely fascinating things about seals and why they're such an important source for understanding the Middle Ages. Because men and women across society, really low level, including peasants, could and did own and use seals in medieval England and parts of Wales and as far as we know in parts of Scotland as well. And so the combination of the images and words they used on the seal stamp and their actual participation in using that seal um, can tell us quite a lot about Parts of society for which we have very little other evidence. Uh, They're they're little glimpses into lives which otherwise are more or less lost to us.
3: Mm. So how broad a range of different seals are there out there? I mean, were there lots of different designs that people could use?
6: Absolutely, the king's the so-called great seal. The seal of the king is probably the best known. It's the one with a an image of uh, majesty on the front, and then the image of a, an equestrian warrior, this knight on horseback, on the back. The nobility tended to use similar things. They used the knight on horseback or um, shields of arms, coats of arms, but you could actually get almost anything and I would say to people expect the unexpected certainly images related to trades and occupation perhaps in relation to somebody's name a pun on their name um a seal I came across of uh, somebody from London who was called pikeman and it had a large fish obviously a pike on it Um, It can also be related to devotional trends, an indication perhaps that somebody went above and beyond the usual run of simply going to church and had a particular devotion. It can also be related to your family or to power. And the wording on seals is also interesting. These are objects which are owned and used by people who in the general run of things would be considered not literate and yet they could literally stamp their name on a document and they could use a name form that perhaps was slightly different, said something slightly different about them for some reason.
3: So it was quite important in terms of identity in a way I suppose.
6: Crucial to identity it's it's uh, one of the really rich sources for trying to get at what 's so difficult how people wanted to represent themselves to others and perhaps some of the ways that they saw themselves within their community their family their their social group
3: so how would these seals have been made how did that process work
6: seal in in English, is used for different types of objects. So you have the the stamp, The technically it's called the matrix, which is made of hard material, quite often metal. And into this is engraved images and words, which represents the owner of the seal. And then you press your... Matrix into soft wax. Now, in the Middle Ages, this was beeswax, sometimes mixed with a little bit of resin and colour. And you could use it to close up a document, and I think that's what a lot of people assume for seals. Uh, And that means that when you got it, you knew nobody had tampered with it, and you'll break it when you opened it. But they were also used, these lumps of wax were deliberately left attached to the documents as the principal means of authenticating it, rather as we would sign our names or use a credit card and put the PIN number in. And though that's probably the most important way they're used, and that's why we get so many surviving, uh, because even... Really small scale exchanges could sometimes be sealed. Uh, So, a very small exchange of land or a bond for a few, even a few pence, between two people might require a seal or they might want a seal. And hundreds of thousands of these seal impressions survive in archives.
3: So these seals were attached to the foot of a document indicating those parties had been involved in doing it. And the process by which the seals had been made means that they often bear the prints and fingerprints of the people involved. Is that correct?
6: Yes, that's absolutely right. Mm. Yes.
3: So how many instances are you looking at in the course of this project?
6: The project runs for three years, and we're going into a number of different archives, including the National Library of Wales. We're also going into Exeter, Hereford and Lincoln Cathedrals and Westminster Abbey. And we'll be looking at um, a couple of thousand documents at least. And we're hoping to have a sample of perhaps as many as a thousand uh, instances of, of finger and palm prints that we can record.
3: And what sort of things are you hoping to find out
6: well, from the history side we 're very interested in looking at as I, as I said the the who 's actually engaged in this process. Is this something that 's to do with restricting power, uh, exerting authority? Is it more down to bureaucracy? It's actually quite a technical fiddly process. So could everyone be trusted to do it properly? Uh, We're we're asking a range of questions from that side. The forensic scientists with whom we're working are also very interested, first of all, in the persistence of fingerprints over time. Of better recording of prints in different types of materials, because wax is soft when you impress the the hand so it distorts the print slightly and then it goes hard uh, it 's also never been absolutely conclusively proven that we all have unique prints, and one of the things that we 're hoping to do is run our data set of approximately a thousand prints from people who've all been dead for about eight hundred years through current databases of prints. If there are still no matches, then it adds considerably to the idea that we all have unique prints. But if there are even possible matches, then it means perhaps a little bit more research needs to be done. Could it be that some of these patterns repeat over years? Uh is it related to genetics, for example? Um, and this this has very real implications, as you can imagine, for modern forensic science.
3: That's so interesting, because we all think of fingerprints as being unique, but it turns out they may not in fact be that way.
6: Well everyone thinks that they are and the evidence that has been collected to date suggests that they are. But this has not been tested against an identifiable population group that is completely removed from the modern one. And this is what we're going to be able to present.
3: Mm. And there are some medieval crimes that these uh, fingerprints might help solve. Is that correct?
6: Yes, that is. We know that sometimes uh, people forged seals or they used seals in fraudulent manners. My colleague, Philip Hoskin from Lincoln, has, for example, done quite a lot of work on a case of the Bishop of Exeter, who, when he was dying, his staff, his clerks, were busy sealing documents for their own benefit with his seal. There's also a case at Westminster Abbey where there are a series of documents which purport to be late Anglo-Saxon grants to the abbey. But there is considerable um, evidence that they were forged in the 12th century or they were created in the 12th century to confirm this. But nobody's ever been able to prove this conclusively. And what we're hoping we might be able to do is match prints that are on those supposed Anglo-Saxon documents with genuine 12th century ones, in which case we would conclusively prove that case and we'd solve a a nearly 900-year-old case of forgery.
3: That's amazing. Um, And how, how do you physically go about getting these fingerprints off the seals and into this database?
6: Well, I'd like to reassure all the archivists out there that we don't go and dust, we do not go and dust them with <laughs> with anything. Uh, we're using a new piece of technology called Crime Light Imager, and it's a multispectral imager that produces very high quality digital images, which can then be used for uh, very accurate comparisons by print analysis specialists, um, and. That also means that they can be run through databases of modern prints, and that's the the principal means that we're we're using. We're working with our colleagues uh, Luke McGrath and uh, Karen Stowe from Forensic Focus, who also work with the University of Lincoln, and they're both experts in their fields.
3: And how long will that process take?
6: We. We have two postdoctoral researchers who are medievalists by training, but they're also being trained at the moment to use this uh, forensic imager, and they will start to send the data back to our forensic colleagues. Really, almost as soon as the uh, archival trips start, we hope that we should start to get some results back very quickly. Certainly, within the next few months, we should start to receive data from the forensic side as well as the historical side.
3: Ah, it's very exciting. Are there any specific things that you personally would like to see solved or explored in more depth as a result of this project?
6: I would like a greater awareness of the range of people involved in sealing, in administrative practices, in participating in exchange, because I still feel that Medieval history is very much dominated by studies of kings and great lords, who are very interesting. But there is a lot that we still can and I think should be learning about society and the middling and lower sorts of society. And I'm really hoping that this project will give us greater insights into those, if you like, ordinary people rather than simply the the um, the great and usually not so good.
3: <laughs> Do we get a sense of what the scene would have been like if we were to travel back in time and witness one of these uh, things in session? Do you know like, who would be involved, how big it would be, all that kind of thing?
6: We know a little bit because the documents themselves record this. The actual transfer of land and property happened and the document recorded this and provided long term evidence, so we know that the two parties the person the two two people or the the institution and people or the two institutions exchanging land or property would meet there would probably be a scribe uh, writing the document and there would be witnesses these would be usually important people in the community or at least people known to each of the parties or one side or the other and some documents those names are written in in a slight different script, so it looks as though the clerk prepared everything. then everyone met, possibly in the the chamber of of the great lord or in the um abbot's lodgings of a monastery or in the guild hall in a town and this document would be read out uh, each party would would seal maybe one half of, of two of two identical documents, uh, and they'd keep each other's one with the seal on. And the names of all the people who are witnessing this would be added. And what's interesting there is witnesses weren't usually men, but women were involved in this process. And again, that's something I'm quite, in, I, and my colleagues are interested in, that looking at how women were involved in fairly day-to-day exchanges right up to very high-level Uh, formal one-off, once-in-a-lifetime exchanges as well. But it would have been quite um, an event. I I, I think that people would have remembered this. In fact, sometimes we know from cases they were asked and they said, oh yes, I remember that because I met somebody there, or yes, and I went out and we then went to the pub and got very drunk that evening, that sort of thing.
3: So they stood out to people in, in their minds? these things yes yes,
6: yes. Yeah. I, th- I think if you're involved in a lot of these exchanges then maybe it got a little bit routine but you're still expected to remember who was using the seal whether they actually did that who was there with you so there are events it would rather as we often remember if we have to go to a solicitor and do some very formal documentation
3: mm. um are there any other personal attributes we can tell from the seals themselves Can we tell people's ages or anything like that from them?
6: Sometimes the wording that's used tell us something about somebody's life cycle. Uh, Again, thinking about women, they might reference their husband or very occasionally they might say that they're a widow. Interestingly, sometimes people, People use more than one seal matrix during their lifetime, and even sometimes more than one matrix at a time. And they're clearly saying different things about themselves. Uh, again, this case from London that so I looked at, where the merchants you had a seal with um, an image of an animal on it. But then when his son became an alderman, so the family went up in social status, he started using a seal with what looked like a a coat of arms. In fact, he just made it up. But um, he was saying something about the increase in status in his family. And we see this sometimes through people's life cycle.
3: Mm. Are there any designs that you've come across in the course of your research that particularly stand out or that you like particularly?
6: Or oh, there are a lot. I mean, it's rather like asking, which is your favourite child? Um... I particularly enjoy the amusing ones the the ones that are perhaps a pun on somebody's name I came across one which when I worked out what it was I thought at first it was a little bit unpleasant it was looked like a a leg which had been torn off uh, and then I noticed that the the leg was very carefully it had what looked like uh wrinkles in it and um, strips at the top. And then I looked at the name of the owner, and his family name was Spring Hose. Now, spring or sprungan means come undone. So what it was, was a leg wearing hose, the sort of tight things that that people wore, that had come undone. These were the laces at the top. So I thought that was that was quite fun. That's pretty good. Uh, yes. And you sometimes get representations, not portraits, but representations of individuals in certain costume or with certain haircuts telling you something about their social status or their status within a family or their occupation and I think they're really interesting as well. Hmm.
3: Are there any ways in which you'd like this project to change people's perceptions of this period or these documents in particular?
6: I think partly the realising that this evidence is out there and it can tell us an awful lot about all sorts of different questions to do with society, identity, culture, politics, representation for men and women, not just at the highest levels, but really from peasants upwards. Also, this is as close as we're ever going to get to, to touching People from the Middle Ages. These are very personal impressions. These are prints from people who've handled that soft wax eight hundred years ago, and we have the privilege of looking at that trace of that now long dead person. And it's it's a very immediate feeling. I, I sometimes uh, I sometimes lose my uh, supposed academic. Um, uh, sort of way of looking at things, and really feel quite touched by the fact that I am almost touching that individual. Uh, and I, I think this sense of immediacy that gives us this this link with the the quite distant past is is a real tan, tangible experience. And I hope that um, we're we're going to have a website, and we're going to have lots of images, and we're hoping to have some three D images so that others can share with us this material.
3: So will people be able to browse through these images and these documents online or will they be able to see who's involved in them, all that kind of thing?
6: Yes they will. We, um, we should be setting up our um website very soon and we we already have a Facebook page and a Twitter account and the researchers who are going into the archives will be updating that and as soon as we have our website set up we will be putting information there and yes the data will be freely accessible to everyone who's interested.
5: That was Elizabeth New. You can read a news story about this project in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned before, is on sale now. And you can also keep up to date on Twitter at imprintproject. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be taking a fresh look at global history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this
1: podcast. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner Hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.